You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and I always want your feedback, and I respond to all new messages on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It would be great to see you there. But to the show today, and a company that's been killing it in the world of enterprise software, I've wanted to do this one for a while, and so I'm thrilled to welcome Dimitri Sirota, founder and CEO at Big ID, the startup that provides advanced data discovery and intelligence for the data center and cloud. Today, Dimitri has raised over $145 million in funding for Big ID from some of the best in the world of enterprise software, including Bold Start, Scale Venture Partners, Bessemer, Salesforce, and Tiger Global, just to name a few. Tiger also, just a couple of weeks ago, led their latest 50 million Series D. Before Big ID, Dimitri founded two prior businesses, the first in 1999, being a VPN security company called eTunnels, and then the second being Layer Technologies, where Dimitri enjoyed an incredible 10-year journey, leading to their acquisition by CA Technologies in 2013. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Alex at Bessemer, Ed at Bold Start, and Matt at Salesforce for some fantastic question suggestions today. Mojito's on me for that. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Electric. Why Electric? Well, did you know that if your network goes down, it can cost you on average $5,600 a minute? Electric can help. What if I also told you, you could have 100% confidence that your business data is secure and allow for new employees to be onboarded with ease and offboarded securely in a few short clicks? Again, Electric can help. So your employees automatically have the right applications installed with the right permissions, and so it's time to make the change and engage with the first-of-its-kind IT platform, Electric, delivering enterprise-grade IT support, previously not available to small and medium-sized businesses, at a fraction of the cost. So whether you have IT in-house or no IT at all, Electric solve it all at lightning-fast speed, either remotely or sending a certified partner to you. So if you're interested in deploying world-class IT which keeps your employees productive and data secure, visit electric.ai forward slash SASTA. That's electric.ai forward slash SASTA. And speaking of keeping your employees productive and happy, at Sasta, one of the most consistent lines we've heard from the community is, I love the events and I love the Sasta blog posts, but I just wish there was a way to train my team on all of this. Well, Sasta finally made it easy with Sasta Pro. Sasta Pro is an online, fully automated training program for SaaS leaders to train their teams on the entire Sasta playbook. Every week, Sasta Pro sends you a 10-minute lesson so your team can learn together at the same time. And if you sign up now, we'll actually give you one free pass to Sasta Annual in March, my favorite event of the year by far, and one free pass to Sasta Europa this summer. That's always amazing fun. Go to sastapro.com to sign up today. That's sastapro.com. However, that's quite enough for me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to Dimitri Sirota, founder and CEO at Big ID. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Dimitri, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. As I was just saying, I've heard so much both from Alex at Bessemer and then also from one of my favorites in Ed Sim at Bold Start. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dimitri. Thanks for having me. Not at all, but I want to start today with a little bit on you. So tell me, uh, made your way from Ukraine to the flattest place in Canada. And then how did you make your way and your initial entry into the world of startups? And what was that aha moment for you with Big ID in a very succinct kind of three to four minutes? Sure. So it's a long arc. I'm not a spring chicken. So my family left the Ukraine many years ago in the 70s and basically traveled to Israel and after a sojourn in Israel ended up in Canada in Winnipeg, a flat place that you mentioned, which is where I basically did my schooling, left to do undergrad in Montreal, grad at UBC and basically ended up in Vancouver. And my entree into technology was that after I graduated from my master's in physics, I was kind of looking for something to do that wasn't physics and had an interest in this burgeoning technology 
technology industry. In fact, I think Mozilla was launched. I remember seeing it when I was in the physics lab. So I was kind of in that vintage. And that was kind of my first taste of the technology industry. I worked in a couple of early tech companies for three years in Vancouver. And then I started my first company, a company called eTunnels, which focused on managed VPN for the emerging telephone companies, Celex, as we used to call them. After that, I did another company in Vancouver called Layer 7, which we ended up exiting in 2013 for a few hundred million. And that's what actually brought me to New York and how I got introduced to Ed. So the company that bought us, Fortune 500 company called CA Technologies, I worked for them for two years, did my kind of tour duty until I vested, thought I wanted to start something new, had some ideas around the protection and privacy of personal information, didn't know a ton of people in New York, started socializing in the tech scene. And Ed Sim from Bullstart was very prominent there, as was Gil Beta, our other investor, and basically got them interested enough to write us a check. We got a co-founder in Tel Aviv. So we started the company in both New York and Tel Aviv. So when it gets too cold in New York, we can go to Israel. Um, <laughs> and four years later, here we are. I mean, what a charming man Ed is. And I'm sure he was brilliant in the New York ecosystem. I do have to ask, and I know hindsight is a very difficult thing, but Ed also asked this too. And we were both wondering, do you wish you'd come to New York and America sooner from Vancouver? You know what? I do. I remember watching movies about Bright Lights, Big Cities. It was a film from the 1980s starring somebody actually from Vancouver. And New York always had this image of the Statue of Liberty and you can make yourself into anything. And so it always had an appeal to me. It just never seemed like an opportunity. While I was working on the other startups, I had a family, a young family, and my parents were in Vancouver. So really, when we were exiting the business, we had a few suitors, some from the Bay Area, one from New York. We actually ended up going with the one that offered us less money because I really wanted to get to New York. Love the city, love the excitement, love the energy, and basically ended up partnering with another company that brought me to New York. But 100%, I wish I was in New York a generation ago after I've graduated university, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I mean, that's fascinating you said there about the acquisition and maybe taking a slightly lower offer because of it being a better fit maybe for you and kind of how you wanted to proceed in the next few years. Because I did want to touch on the fundraise. And I've heard you speak before and you said very specifically that one of the lessons from the eTunnels fundraise was working with investors and kind of the challenges when you don't see eye to eye. And kind of thinking about that, you know, maybe not taking the optimal in terms of price. How do you think about what specifically is the right way to manage a situation where investors and founders' interests are no longer aligned? I have a good situation at Big ID, and maybe it's because we've had some success over the last couple of years. But certainly, we've been able to assemble a good group of people. And the investors around our table are all supportive. Even when we've had bumps, they've been there. I unfortunately have had the opposite experience in the tunnels, as you underscored, and a little bit more of a middle-of-the-road experience at my next company at Big ID. Look, I, I think it's important. Obviously, I'm on my third company. It's been a lot easier to assemble a team around the table. I've gotten to know each of the investors in advance, as it happens on the Big ID occasion. Most of the investors actually wanted to invest in prior rounds, and we ended up going with somebody else. And so they were kind of first at the table when other opportunities presented themselves. And so I got to know them, right? I think you mentioned Alex. I got to know Alex from Bessemer through unusual circumstances. We were actually talking about the industry off and on informally and nothing about Big ID. And that's what eventually led him to think through or at least offer to lead our Series C. So I think there are hard lessons. Like I said, or like you said, the experience we had at eTunnels was very eye-opening. It was a difficult time. It was 2001. And so I think many companies struggled in that period. But clearly, I think that informed my behavior today, including in terms of raising, right? In terms of having that cushion and that safety net and the ability to have that flexibility, that 
informs my decision, you know, having lived through two Black Swan events. When you say the cushion, do you mean the cushion in terms of extended runway or are there other kind of governance features that you think is the cushioning that provides security? So for us, it's really about having the capital. Obviously, in having the capital at a reasonable price that wasn't dilutive, all these other type of things. But, you know, we didn't need to raise our C round that Alex from Bessemer led. We had plenty of money in our B round. We barely touched it. We were actually just basically finishing off our capital from the A round. And this most recent funding that we announced on Monday, led by Tiger Global, we certainly didn't need that, having not even touched any of our C round. But again, it came with good terms at a low dilution, a good partner that was very experienced in taking companies to that next level, and certainly with plenty of capital should we need it. But a lot of that experience does borrow from the learnings from e-tunnels and to some degree layer seven, where we had much smaller amounts of capital raises. I think my entire raise at layer seven was 21 million and it came in drips and drabs. And so we were always pressed against the wall. And when things like 2008 occurred, that was a struggle to find our way through that and navigate through the turbulent waters. Yeah, no, I'm just really intrigued. You know, Reid Hoffman always says, when the money's on the table, take it. You never know what's coming around the corner. Would you agree with him then, given kind of that unique mindset that you've had from seeing the boom and the bust of, you know, the dot-com 2008 and then also kind of capital-rich environments? It does. You know, capital has a lot of benefits. Obviously, you need to spend it wisely. And I think there's been some examples recently of companies that were maybe overly aggressive. But having said that, it provides you not only insurance, but it allows you to bring forward other plans, whether they're technology or sales. And that's always helpful in the market. It also attracts attention. And as much as I don't like to say it, that matters. You have competitors and being able to outshine all these other stars in the night sky matters, right? You're the one that gets noticed. You're the one that people feel more comfortable around partnering with you. So capital has its virtues. It's easy to abuse and misuse, but it has its benefits. Yeah, absolutely, it does. I do want to touch on the element that you said there in terms of kind of lessons from e-tunnels and layer seven in terms of being much leaner in terms of real capital efficiency and raising itself. You said once on e-tunnels, you raised for kind of two to three paychecks ahead of time. How do you think about that kind of balance of being lean versus being cheap and actually hindering growth versus actually just being extremely capital efficient in those early days? So look, there's, there's a difference between capital efficiency and just not having any money to do anything. So there's clearly companies that have bootstrapped their way to success. Atlassian is one that jumps out at me where they built a business around the proposition that you didn't need to have expensive sales force and you could use word of mouth to basically get into the enterprise. And there are other examples as well. It really depends on the type of business you're at and whether you have competitors or not. I think if you're in an industry where it feels like it's going to happen and there's a timing situation like in the world of privacy, right, where you have GDPR and CCPA and all of these kind of external exogenous events that are going to kind of trigger an investment community, there it makes sense, right? And especially if you're doing enterprise sales with an enterprise sales force and you're touching enterprise data where you need to get it right because enterprises are really persnickety about people that don't treat their databases and their data and other things correctly, right? So you want to be able to provide those companies the level of confidence and assurance. You're going to be around, you're going to be able to support them, you're going to be able to take care of them in the way that they expect to be taken care of. So like I said, I think every business has a fingerprint and a profile. In the 80s, uh, there's a book about what color is your parachute. And I think as an entrepreneur, you need to figure out what color is the parachute of your business. But certainly for a business like Big ID, where we catered to the biggest of the big, and we helped them basically to be more accountable around their most important asset, which is the data that they collect on their customers and their 
employees, it made a lot of sense, which is why we did it. Totally agree there, especially in terms of kind of securing the confidences of those big enterprises. When founders ask me, the only element that I do pull back on and just kind of try and make them think about is kind of the requirement to hit the next round valuation in a reasonable time frame. I'm interested, how did you think about that? Given, as you said, you really didn't need the cash. It wasn't such a dilutive round. How did you think about that kind of lofty valuation and kind of hitting it in the next 12 to 18 months? Was that a concern for you? It is and it isn't. And in fact, in both cases, both my C and my D, we didn't actually go with the term sheets that had the highest valuations. So there were a number of factors that played into it beyond just the raw number. There's the terms of the deal. There's the type of investor. You know, Do you want them very active? Do you want them not to be active? Do you want them to be close? Do you want them to be far? So I think with every round, there's being some strategic thinking. We've been fortunate enough in our A, B, C, D this time around, again, very different from McDonald's or Layer 7. This time around, we've actually haven't had to go out and raise. So our A was preempted, our B was preempted, our C was preempted, our D was preempted. We weren't fundraising for any of them. And in each of those cases, we had multiple offers. So we did have some choice and we had some very notable, well-known investors, separate from the ones we chose to partner with, that were interested. And like I said, I think there was a number of factors that we considered beyond just valuation because we didn't optimize our valuation. You just mentioned the two there being kind of the type of investor that you really want to work with and partner with. And then also the terms. When you're advising an angel investment stay, what terms do you say, hey, make sure that this is aligned and make sure that we have this in place? And then I'm also intrigued for you personally, what type of investor do you find you most gel with and align with? So I think with me, it depends. I tend to like to build consensus at a board and talk through decisions and frankly, make sure that most of the hard decisions are already decided long before we have a board meeting. Similarly, I don't like surprises to be foisted on my investors. They'll know about things that happen long before the board meeting once a quarter. So I think for me, obviously, the ability to be able to work with individuals, transparency, honesty, integrity, all of those are considerations. Having said that, I don't think I've not gone with somebody because I didn't feel that they had integrity. I think these are just generally things you want and things that I would encourage anybody else to do. But candidly, the best situation is, again, when you're not raising so that it's preempted, you have a choice of investors. So you can maximize based on whatever parameters you care about whether it's valuation, where it's speed of close, whether it's terms, liquidation preferences, whatever those things are. And the best thing is to get yourself into a situation, create enough buzz that you do have that fortunate occurrence where multiple people want to give you money even when you don't need it. And that's when you know you want it as opposed to going to Sand Hill Road and getting rejected over and over, which is obviously very, very painful emotionally. Now, in terms of startup people, a couple of guys or girls building their first company, that's a little bit of a different consideration. I think trying to raise angel money, the best encouragement I would say is have prior success. Because for most investors, that's the determiner on whether you'll have future success. They're betting on people as much as they're betting on an idea or on a technology because you don't tend to have much at that early stage. Now, if you don't have that experience, if you don't have those past wins, the other alternative is really to have some industry credibility or to build that team around you to, again, give those early investors the confidence that you have something special. There's a narrative around why you will succeed with these individuals and why maybe nobody else will succeed. And so as much as possible, I think it's being able to tell that story. And storytelling, I think, is something you hear a lot about from entrepreneurs. And I think to some degree, one of the markers of us being a successful entrepreneur is really about how well do you tell that story? Why did you see the problem? Why is it you and your team that are going to be able to solve the problem? Why is this problem big? And being able to explain that effectively to early investors and compellingly enough is really, I think, the best indication
indicators of success as a first-time or second-time entrepreneur trying to raise your first money? I'm so intrigued. You said one thing that really kind of spiked my interest, and it was the element of kind of really building consensus pre-board. You know, I've joined my first boards within the last few years and trying to optimize how I am as a board member. What do you do as the founder to really align and build consensus pre-board? And what really works in terms of solidifying that alignment pre-board meeting so there's no surprises? So I talk to my investors a bunch, whether it's over phone, whether it's over text. I think in the last two days, I've talked to most of my investors, not necessarily about anything that has to happen at the board, but other things that we're doing in terms of hiring. We have a fairly open line of communication, and that obviously builds trust. And so when I tell them good news or bad news or middle of the road news, they'll understand why I'm doing it and that there's a degree of honesty around it. And so I happen to be a person that, again, talks to them frequently. I know that there's other entrepreneurs that choose not to, choose to basically treat the board as something that is immaterial or in their way. I happen to have more of a consensus. Maybe it's because I spent so much time in Canada that I feel it's important to bring people along on decisions. And the best way to do that is, again, to build a relationship, a rapport. Well, I mean, speaking of relationships and rapport, you have a great relationship with Ed. And I was chatting to him before the show. And we were talking about kind of the recent raises and the over 100 million in the last five months of 2019. And it seems to make everything easier. But Ed asked a very good one. He asked a very kind of poignant question being, what do you think is the biggest challenge entering 2020, having raised over 100 million in the last five months? Well, look, I think with the more money you raise, the expectations grow commensurately, right? And now you need to balance that. Like, do I hire a thousand salespeople that may improve my chances of selling a thousand times? But obviously that has impacts on territory and so forth. So I still think that how you scale out, how you meet some of those increased expectations, which are legitimate, right? Obviously they're giving you that money to be able to execute and demonstrate on that. And then how do you balance that by also kind of rolling out additional capabilities? You now are servicing a lot more customers than maybe you were before you raised the 100 million. That's probably why or how you got to the 100 million raise, which is certainly in our case. You know, we have far more customers at the end of 2019 than we had at the beginning of 2019. So again, there's a lot of thought that goes into the capital deployment and utilization that goes between, you know, how much direction it sales? Is it about opening new territories like federal? Is it about basically just providing additional coverage and headcount? How much is directed in marketing and whether it's around brand or demand generation? How much goes towards engineering, both in support of existing product and introduction of additional product? And how much goes towards channel building and creating kind of indirect routes to market through system integrators and through other ISV partners and maybe through bars? So there's a lot of factors that frankly, we're still working through in terms of our 2020 plan. Can I ask, in terms of those planning capital allocation decisions, how do you think about when's the right time to really pour fuel on the fire for a specific strategy, product, segment, international expansion project? How do you think about when's the right time to really accelerate on a project versus when to tentatively test and measure and optimize? So there's a couple of markers. And, and frankly, I don't think these markers are necessarily dissimilar from what you would hear from a VCs, right? About repeatability of the sales cycle, about having metrics that you can now base on that are demonstrably true, right? Whether it's how long it does it take to go from a POC to a sale? What is the ACV that they kind of cluster in a particular bracket that you've been able to show success, ideally in one vertical, even better across multiple industry verticals and even better across multiple geographies. So those are all considerations. And I think if you find an anchor use case, right, a problem that you're able to solve repeatedly, that you're able to demonstrate exists across not just one industry segment, but multiple industry segments and multiple geographies, that to me is indicative of a problem that 
that likely you could add capital to, right? That there's more people that have this problem because you've already shown, hopefully, that people are willing to hand over sizable amounts of money to find technology to solve that problem. And I think those are kind of some of the markers that you look for in deciding when to raise and when to deploy. You mentioned that kind of finding technology to solve a problem, suggesting kind of that latent and ready and tappable demand. I guess my final question before the quickfire is a question of market timing. You've said before that one of your big lessons with Layer 7 was the future was maybe further out than planned. How do you think about market timing today then? And for me as an investor, Dimitri, I have to say, I always say a risk I'm not willing to take is market timing because I'm not as clever as the market. Is that naive of me? No, look, I think market timing is hugely, and obviously I've I've spoken about this with regards to Layer 7. I think we were ultimately right. And there's a big industry around APIs, whether it's infrastructure or just API services like Plaid and Twilio, et cetera. But we were early to market and there was a lot of twiddling of our thumbs and waiting for the market to emerge and Amazon to introduce their cloud and Apple to introduce the iPhone with their apps. This time around, we thought through the problem and realized there needed to be a compelling event. So if you're going to do something that's blue ocean, something that's new, as opposed to displacing existing kind of categories or replacing, you know, like endpoint security is a, is a replacement strategy, right? There's existing technology and you're saying, I, I got a better mousetrap. But if you're really thinking through about a blue ocean opportunity that is new, ideally there is something that is compelling. And in our particular case, it was the regulations. The regulations were going to force certain amount of budget and a certain amount of spend. And we obviously made a bet those regulations were going to get broader and stiffer in terms of penalties and that they were going to go globally. And that was kind of the bet we made. But clearly, we had a forcing function, right? There was a catalyst, which are the regulations like GDPR and now CCPA that created this compelling event. But certainly, if you are, if an entrepreneur is thinking about a blue ocean opportunity, as opposed to a displacement or replacement opportunity, it is good to have that kind of event. And the only other alternative, I would say, is where the ROI is so clear cut, where you're replacing some manual task and the efficiency that you're introducing is so overwhelming. That would be the only other exception in terms of market timing around blue ocean opportunities. Well, I'm very glad that I'm not completely missing the mark there. So that's a relief to hear. But I do want to move into my favorite elements of any episode, Dimitri. So I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less per statement. How does that sound? Okay, let's try it. Okay, so your favorite book and why? What's the must read? I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. I'm reading Super Pumped. It's a great read and it's really a reflection of the time we have today around technology and amount of money that companies are raising and how they grow fast. What's your biggest advice to first-time founders on successful board management? Be honest, be transparent, over-communicate. Tell me, is now finally the time for New York tech or is there still quite a lot of hype around it? No, New York tech has matured across. It's no longer just ad tech. It's no longer just fashion tech. It's security tech. It's infrastructure tech. It's all tech. So New York can rival the Bay Area. What's your biggest strength? And then what's your biggest weakness? Biggest strength, I think, is that I'm thoughtful, strategic. Biggest weakness would probably be the same thing. I think through certain situations and try and find a path forward. Uh, Sometimes people who shoot from the hip have certain advantages. A question from the wonderful Alex at Bessemer. What does the morning routine look like for you, Dimitri? (laughs) I'd like to say it's going to the gym every day, but for the last week, it's basically going to the pool and the beach because I'm on vacation. (laughs) I would normally just lie. Whenever I'm asked this question, I'm like, well, I meditate at 4 a.m. I then go to the gym at 5. You can totally get away with it. Who was the first investor in Big ID? And how did that chat come about? Gil Beta. And I got to meet him again as I was kind of meeting folks in New York when I met Ed. And I think Gil Beta from his seed stage fund and Ed, they basically cut us our initial $2 million to 
would get Big ID started. What do you believe that most around you disbelieve, Dimitri? You know, increasingly, I think a lot of people believe in all kinds of crazy conspiracies. And maybe it's because of my background in physics or the principle of Occam's razor. What always amazes me today more than ever is the things that you read about and see and the conspiracies that people believe, both in kind of the outside political sphere, but also even in business. And I think people are prone and very suggestible. So I think that's one of the things, unfortunately, is a trend that I'm seeing more and more of. And then final one, what's the next five years for you and for Big ID? Paint that picture for us. Well, in four months, we'll be raising again. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So look, we have four years of capital, which is a great thing to say and great thing to do. I think for us, it truly is the belief of being able to expand from that core use case that we've demonstrated is repeatable across industry verticals and geographies into a much broader platform play. And that's really going to be the focus for us as we build our business and also enter new markets, right? I think we're excited about entering other geographies in Asia and Europe. Uh, We're excited about adding new products to the business that leverage that core use case around data discovery and data intelligence. So that'll take a lot of our energies for the next four years. As I said, I had so many great things, both from Alex and from Ed. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dimitri. And uh, I can't wait for the raise in four months. Okay, terrific. Thank you for having me. Take care. So good to have Dimitri on the show there and such exciting times ahead with Big ID. And if you'd like to see more from us at the show, you can find me on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Electric. Why Electric? Well, did you know that if your network goes down, it can cost you on average $5,600 a minute? Electric can help. What if I also told you you could have 100% confidence that your business data is secure and allow for new employees to be onboarded with ease and offboarded securely in a few short clicks. Again, Electric can help. So your employees automatically have the right applications installed with the right permissions. And so it's time to make the change and engage with the first of its kind IT platform, Electric. Delivering enterprise-grade IT support, previously not available to small and medium-sized businesses at a fraction of the cost. So whether you have IT in-house or no IT at all, Electric solve it all at lightning fast speed, either remotely or sending a certified partner to you. So if you're interested in deploying world-class IT, which keeps your employees productive and data secure, visit electric.ai forward slash saster that's electric.ai forward slash saster and speaking of keeping your employees productive and happy as saster one of the most consistent lines we've heard from the community is i love the events and i love the saster blog posts but i just wish there was a way to train my team on all of this well saster finally made it easy with saster pro saster pro is an online fully automated training program for sas leaders to train their teams on the entire saster playbook every week saster pro sends you a 10 minute lesson so your team can learn together at the same time. And if you sign up now, we'll actually give you one free pass to SAS to Annual in March, my favorite event of the year by far, and one free pass to SAS to Europa this summer. That's always amazing fun. Go to sastapro.com to sign up today. That's sastapro.com. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode entering the world of SAS VC again next week.